2.99. Why are you judging my daughter's diving? I wasn't talking about her. I was finalizing this month's special at Palo Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 2.99% interest for 10 years. Wow, 2.99. Dad, visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So last night, went out to dinner with um, some friends, came back, and I, I had made a point of recording the Packers ball game, Packers game. So we I got back about like nine thirty or ten. So I, I just said I, I almost never do that. I watch stuff live, but I was really curious. Okay, I'm going to see how this this goes. And you know, I ended up putting it on and watched it for eh, at least probably the first half, maybe a little bit into the second half before I got tired and went to bed. But I, I will say this: going into this year, the special teams still just absolutely suck. I mean, I, now I understand it's a preseason game, and maybe when they get people back from injuries. But but the thing that cost them their chance to get to the Super Bowl last year was the, the special teams just playing abysmally. Remember that game against San Francisco in the playoffs and blocked punts and big returns and just just awful special teams play that plagued them the entire year. So this was going to be the season where we turn it around. We go out, we hire the best special teams coach in the business from you know Las Vegas. We pay him a ton of money. We allow him to bring in his own assistant. We upgrade the special teams thing. And all preseason, it has been awful, just absolutely awful. So you, you got to wonder, have they just been like keeping this all under wraps? And maybe when the regular season starts and they start to play some of the the regulars on special teams, because again, I, I mean, I think the Packers just have a they're, they're loaded, and I think this is a team that has a re- realistic chance, especially with their defense, of getting back into the Super Bowl. But the, the special teams, based on what they showed over the preseason, there you can almost make an argument that they're worse this year than they were at the end of last year, and they were as bad as you can be in the NFL. But again, maybe it's just an optical illusion brought on by um, preseason. But man, if you if you thought that they had solved the problems, and if preseason is any indicator, it certainly isn't. All right, I have in my hands the unsealed search warrant affidavit in connection with the search of the former president's residence at Mar-a-Lago. As I've been telling you all along, the, the document you really need to see to try to assess the the necessity of doing a search warrant and, um, again, the, the validity behind the theory is you have to look at the search warrant affidavit, which is the sworn document that establishes probable cause to do the search. So a portion of that has been released, and I say a portion of it because... I have it in my hands, and I will say this at the beginning. Anybody who still wants to make an evaluation about whether it was necessary or whether it was overkill, based on what has been released, you you, you can't do it because the document has been largely redacted to become, in my opinion, almost meaningless. And by redacted, I mean that they take a black magic marker, literally, and they cross out huge portions of it. So I have in my hands the 38-page affidavit, and there's the first couple pages um, 
indicating, okay, you know, the, the background, I'm an FBI agent, etc. These are the various statutes that are involved. That takes you for the first six or seven um, pages. Then, okay, paragraph 24, page 7, they talk about the referral. Um, the FBI got a referral from the records people saying that they believe that President Trump had, had documents that he wasn't entitled to have. And that's where the redactions start. Paragraph 26, blacked out. Paragraph 27, blacked out. Paragraph 28, blacked out. Paragraph 29, blacked out. Paragraph 30, according to the CBS Miami article titled, Moving Trucks Spotted at Mar-a-Lago, published Monday, January 18th, 2021, at least two moving trucks were observed at the premises on January 18th. Rest of that paragraph blacked out. Paragraph 31 blacked out. 32 blacked out. 33 blacked out. 34, 35, 36, 37 all blacked out. Um, then it says provision of the 15 boxes to Naira. 38 blacked out. Most of 39 blacked out. 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46 all blacked out. And paragraph 47, 15 boxes provided to the records people. Because apparently what happened is that the there was a request made to the Trump people, and Trump people provided 15 boxes to the, the government. 48 blacked out. 49, 50, 51 blacked out. Paragraph 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59, 60 blacked out. Paragraph 62, 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, 74, 75, 76, all blacked out. Paragraph 77, based on the investigation, I believe the storage room at the residential suite in Mar-a-Lago contains is is not authorized for the storage of classified information. Paragraph 78 blacked out, and then the warrant asks for permission to search Mar-a-Lago. So, again, for people who thought that there was going to be any sort of smoking gun one way or the other in this, with all the redactions and the deletions, you, you cannot make any sort of meaningful assessment about why they felt there was the need to go in. A couple things I, I think are clear. First of all, some of the stories that were leaked earlier and appeared in like the Washington Post and the New York Times talking about there being nuclear secrets and things like that I, I, at least at least in what appears that you can see from the warrant affidavit I don't think there's anything like that but it, it looks to me like for whatever reason mixed in with personal items that he took he also took documents which were arguably cla- which were classified documents I we, we can't evaluate whether any of them had any real significance to real national security or not, again, because everything's blacked out in in this affidavit. But it it does appear very clear that Donald Trump took documents that probably, probably, most likely should have been left back and, and turned over to the National Archive. They turned over a lot of records, but they did not turn over all of the records, which then necessitated the search warrant. When it comes to national security, you can't tell anything from this warrant affidavit what particularly they were there. I don't think there were nuclear secrets or anything like that. But it appears that Trump, for whatever reason, maintained records that at least the government believes 
he should have returned. And that's what necessitated all this. And that's that's pretty much all there is to it. Now, over the last couple weeks, I've heard from a number of you, some people thinking this is nothing more than a witch hunt, others saying this is it. They need to arrest him. They need to put him in an orange jumpsuit and handcuffs, and they need to send him to prison for keeping these records when he arguably shouldn't have been. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, here's my question. How does this end? What what should happen now? The, the government believed that President Trump kept records that he was not entitled to keep. We, we don't know how significant those records are, but it doesn't appear that these were really the nuclear secrets or things like that. But regardless, it now appears that any records that might have been improperly stored at Mar-a-Lago have, in fact, been recovered. So where do we go from here? What should happen next? 855-616-1620. Do we let it drop now? Do we try to pursue the former president and try to prosecute him for violations of the Records Act and try to put him in prison for, along with personal items, keeping records that he probably, bringing records to his presidential office in Florida that he probably should have left in Washington? Where do you see this going? What is the end game? I've got a theory. I'll share it with you, but I'm curious. How do you think this should turn out? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Jeff Wagner is back right after this on WTMJ. From our urban centers bursting with festivals to our beautiful outdoor vistas, Wisconsin has something for everyone. Discover all the amazing adventures waiting to be had on Travel Wisconsin with John McCure. Saturdays at 2, Wisconsin's radio station, 620 WTMJ. Now, about your house. Eric Brown is the president of Siding Unlimited, your contractor for new windows, roofing, siding, decks, and a whole lot more. He knows about your house. So what do you know, Eric? Do you have new siding and now you just want to keep it looking great? There are a couple things that come to mind when maintaining a beautiful home exterior. The first is just a good old cleaning. We recommend that you use a hose or a very light setting on your pressure washer to spray the dust off your siding. Don't force the water onto the siding very hard because water could get behind the siding and cause damage. Your home may or may not have a weather barrier behind the siding and using high pressure water could cause problems. Definitely clean your siding to keep it looking beautiful, but don't get crazy and wash it off the building. Another quick tip to avoid siding issues comes with our favorite summer activity, grilling out. As much fun as it is to try different grilling recipes, using the grill too close to the home could result in some unforeseen disasters. When you use your grill, make sure it is away from the home. I like to make sure it is at least 7 feet from the house. If you have vinyl siding, the results of the grill being too close can be obvious, melted siding. However, if you have siding that won't melt, the heat from the grill could cause issues with the siding's paint or radiate through the siding and cause issues with the insulation, wiring, plumbing, or anything else in the wall that the heat could disturb. When you get new siding that is going to last a lifetime, just a few house cleaning tips can go a long way in preserving your beautiful home. Oh yeah, and keep the weed whacker away from the siding too. That never ends well. Eric and his crews at Siding Unlimited are your go-to contractor here for replacement windows, roofing, decks, and of course, siding. They are the best, as acknowledged by the many rewards their suppliers have conferred upon them. Now, take the next step. Check them out at SidingUnlimited.com. Siding Unlimited, siding, and a whole lot more.
Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The 2022 WTMJ Classic, hosted by the club at Lock LaBelle, was a huge success. Thanks to all those who helped us raise money for Special Olympics Wisconsin, and a special thanks to our partners, Culligan Water, Dave Dre, Camp Heating, Evans Transportation, Griffin Automotive, Gruber Law Offices, Pella Windows and Doors, Wisconsin, Selzner, Ernst, and Sit Means Sit dog training 855-616-1620 all right looking at the search warrant affidavit i would say fully two-thirds of it are are, is blacked out so you you really can't make an adjustment assessment as to was there probable cause to take the records and and more importantly what was the urgency to take records that you'd been negotiating the recovery of over the course of the last 18 months some of these reports that there were nuclear secrets and all raise a couple questions first of all if they're really nuclear secrets why did you let Trump keep them for for 18 months? And secondly, the question would be, why did you feel you needed to, to go in and do this as opposed to just issuing a subpoena? But all right, now the records have been recovered. What do you what do you do now? Andy in Milwaukee or in WTMJ? Hi. Hi. Um, so I just I, I just kind of feel that it's more of a in general thing, not necessarily what was in them, but more of a, you know, you don't take White House files once you leave the office. Um, I think I think it's more of just that, and I think because of that, he should be held at least to a fair trial. I mean, he's been held to a couple fair trials, and he's won those already. So, so you want him criminally prosecuted? I want him. Well, that's what to a trial be is. Treated the same way. It's, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. To be to be treated the same way as, as anybody, you know. If you're if he he took White House files, it's, it's not necessarily what's in them. It's it's more just the fact that he took uh, White House files when he wasn't supposed to. Well, I mean, okay, thanks. Well, I guess the question is, when you say he wasn't supposed to, I mean, he he might say, hey, these were my personal papers or or whatever. But I guess the, my question is, it is a former president of the United States. With the exception of one or two instances where you had people who really did, I, I don't know, take documents with the idea that we're going to sell them to foreign powers or things like that, as opposed to, look, these, these were my documents. These um, do they belong in the National Archives? Okay, maybe they do. D- do you really want to prosecute the former president of the United States? And, and what sort of precedent does this set? especially if there's no evidence, and I don't believe there's any evidence, that he was I mean, trying to distribute these, these papers to a foreign power or whatever. I think once the search warrant is finally, if it ever, if, the, if, it's, if it's ever released in its entirety, and the only way it would probably be released in its entirety is if there were criminal charges which were brought and that was then released in, in the process of discovery, because then you could do that. I think maybe that what you would see is that the archives became concerned that some of these documents that he had, he had maintained in a less than secure fashion, and so there was a concern that maybe some spy could get in and take them, but without actually seeing the documents you, you don't that were, were brought back, you, you don't know, you don't really know what the impact of this is. But, I mean, imagine the concept of taking a former president of the United States and putting him on trial for 
what I think would be, I think, fairly described as a technical violation of, of the law. Yes, he had records. It's not like he broke in and stole records that he wasn't entitled to have at the first place. He had records that he had abs- access to that were in his possession and that for whatever reasons probably as much laziness as anything he didn't he didn't turn them all over in what the government believed was a timely fashion do you really want to prosecute a former president of the united states for doing something like that and doesn't that kind of if that's the theory that's there doesn't that kind of reflect on the stuff that you see in banana republics where you know you have a change of power and then you have the subsequent administrations go out and want to try to put you know the previous administrations into prison. And if you're a regular listener to this program, don't get me wrong, I want Donald Trump to go away, all right? I, I think it would be best for the Republican Party if he just kind of graciously took a, took a back seat. I, I want him to go away, but that doesn't mean I want him to go away to prison. I think if you issued criminal charges, it would be almost impossible to secure a conviction. I think it would completely and totally disrupt this country you would make donald trump a martyr and you wouldn't really accomplish anything don't know what the deterrence would be for something that again i think for people who throw around the terms treason and espionage and stuff like that really they're they're letting their trump hatred get in their place um jeff it sounds like it all depends on what the documents were uh, maybe to an extent. Jeff, the president, the prosecution would said is that you have to know what the rules are and follow them. Um, well, okay, but, but there's all sorts of different, there's all sorts of different rules that are, that are out there. So what are the rules? If the rules say, okay, you shouldn't kill, well, obviously, yes, you kill somebody, you end up getting prosecuted. But if in this case, again, it's a dispute over, were you entitled to keep these records or not? Should they have been returned? And if, especially if the records really don't impact on national security. And the best argument I could make in response to this is the whole notion of, they, they, they knew Trump had this stuff. And you sit around for a year and a half, and you're, you're, you're negotiating to get these things back. I mean, if they really felt that there was a huge national security risk, well, it would, seems to me that you would have acted a lot sooner. And again, I'm not endorsing keeping them. For the life of me, I don't know why former President Trump kept these documents. I assume it's just laziness or sloppiness uh, uh, as much as, as anything. Typically what happens, and if you look at what happened with Mike Pence, the vice president, you know, he, he tasked a guy... I think it was his chief of staff in his office right after the election. He said, okay, this is your mission. I I want you to separate all these documents that we have here, the ones that I am entitled to keep, my personal documents, as opposed to, you know, again, the the ones that, that have to stay here. So did Trump take this as seriously as he should have? Clearly not. Clearly not. But that's kind of the way the presidency was run. But do you really put somebody in prison for doing that? Connie, Connie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Listen, I, I don't know why you keep defending him. He, like the last caller, he took papers he wasn't supposed to take. Like anybody else, why shouldn't he go to prison? Why? I mean, why defend this man who's done so many things wrong, and we finally but, can get him for something? So that's what really you want, Connie. That, that's what there. you want. We, he's, he's gotten away with this other stuff, so this is a, a technical white-collar sort of violation. We're going to put him in jail. That's what you want. Yes, I do. Well, okay. Well, I mean, there, 
Connie, I think that there are some people who would describe that as as vindictive, counterproductive, not in the interest of the country. Well, you laugh, but because you hate Donald Trump, you you want him, you want him behind bars, and you don't, I don't care. Hate anybody. You just said you hated him. You wanted to. Well, you just you just said you want him behind bars. You just said I, I yeah. want him in Does jail. That mean I hate him? Okay, so you you don't hate mean him. I hate him. You just want him in jail. I think he should be treated like any other person. If you do something that's wrong and harmful to our country, he should be punished. What did for he do it. that was harmful to the country? Those pretty good papers. We do not know what those papers say. Well, but you so you don't know that they're harmful to the country. You don't know that that's harmful to the country. Was he sloppy? Should oh, he have done it? Come on, Jeff. Well, what's you harmful to the country? What do you know? Why? I well, mean, he's entitled. Well, well, but see, kind of, I'm not the one saying send him to jail, put him away. No, thanks for that call. I mean, I don't hate him. No, look, I, if if I don't know that you can find anybody who's been prosecuted under this law, which is a a technical law. Normally, what happens is you you issue subpoenas that you're required to return them. I don't know that you can find anybody who's ever been prosecuted under a variation of this law unless you had evidence that they were trying to, you know, sell the papers to some foreign power or something like this. But this idea that, oh, it's Trump. He's gotten away with all this other stuff. So this is what we got to do. This is our chance. We're going to put him in jail and then we're going to high five. But we don't hate him. Don't we? We we don't hate him at all. Look, I I want Trump to go away. Okay, that's just the the bottom line. I think he should disappear. This is a self-inflicted wound. But, you know, if it wasn't Trump, I don't think they would have been searching his place in the first place. I think the way this would have typically been handled is, you know, you, you continue to negotiate with the attorneys to get these documents back. And then if you don't you issue a subpoena and if you don't follow the subpoena, you don't comply with that, you get held in contempt. That That's that's the way this would normally be handled. I believe that this was ratcheted up because it was, in fact, Trump. So I'm not sure Trump was being treated the same way other people would be. But at the end of the day, unless there's evidence that he's selling nuclear secrets or something like this, is this really the type of thing that you put anybody in jail for? And if you don't, if it isn't for the fact that you hate Donald Trump, despise him, want to see him hauled away in an orange jumpsuit and in prison for the rest of his life, if this was anybody else, let's face it, you wouldn't be arguing that he should go to jail for something like this. As a number of people, one of our texts says, hey, if this was a Democrat, you'd be singing a different tune. Be consistent. No, actually, I am consistent. Remember Hillary Clinton? Remember all the secret stuff that she had on her private emails that she shouldn't have? Remember that Trump saying lock her up? I, I never bought into that either. I thought what you had were technical violations of the law, if you want to call them violations of the law. But no, I didn't want to lock up Hillary Clinton, just like I don't think it makes any sense to try to lock up Donald Trump. And mark my words... It's never going to happen. Now, I understand that this is, you know, for for the the Trump haters out there who just haven't been able to let that go. I I get it that your your fever dream is I want to see him frog marched away. I doubt he is ever going to be prosecuted on what would be, I think, a technical violation of the law to the extent it's a violation of the law. And if he would be prosecuted, I don't think there's any way he would be found guilty beyond reasonable doubt. And I'm not endorsing. He should have just given back the records. Okay, he shouldn't have had them in boxes at Mar-a-Lago, at least as far as I'm concerned. But that's a far cry from saying you're going to take a former president, even if you hate the former president, and you're going to have him put in prison. I, I just tell you, you got to get over it. It's just flat out not going to happen. Having said that, 
um, I, I think, again, this is another one of these self-inflicted wounds that you've seen on Donald Trump inflict on himself over the course of the last couple years. The Southern Gunslinger is back where he belongs. Hall of Famer Brett Favre joins Mark Tremura every Monday morning at 7.30 on 94.5 ESPN throughout the football season. Hear the best green and gold talk. And don't miss a recap on Wisconsin's Afternoon News at 5.15. It's Brett Favre and Mark Tremura every Monday. Presented by Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin and sponsored by Concordia University of Wisconsin and Island Resort and Casino. Hey, the again, the... Um, I understand that the Trump search warrant affidavit release, and I say this in quotation marks because, like I say, if, if you did what I did, you printed it out, two-thirds of it is blacked out. You, you really, there, there's almost no substance in this other than he had records, we went back and forth, they gave us some of the records, and then they didn't give us all of the records, and, and that's pretty much all it, it says. So you don't know the basis, why they thought it was important or whatever. But the real story today is that the stock market once again taking a major plunge for the second time this week. As we speak now, the Dow is down 670 points. That's more than 2%. The NASDAQ is down 361 points. That's almost 3%. What is going on? Well, <clears throat> the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, who showed very, very little ability to deal with inflation in a way that the, the markets at least think is appropriate, he, he gave a speech this morning in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and essentially said, well, we, we don't have, infl- I'm paraphrasing, but just a little bit, we really don't have inflation under control yet. And so what we're looking at doing is continuing the, these major interest rate increases. And the stock market didn't like that. And market was slightly up earlier today. And after Powell started talking, uh, again, trillions of dollars or at least hundreds of millions of dollars of, of collected wealth started disappearing. So Dow Jones down 682 points right now, Nasdaq down 364, and it's again based on the remarks that Jerome Powell made that uh, did not did not lead investors to believe that the Federal Reserve had a handle on inflation, which continues to, I think, be the number one issue plaguing most people in the country today. All right. We talked about this earlier this week. California, which pretty much I, I think every bad idea that's, that ends up moving across the country, it, it starts in, in California. And California, um, through one of their boards, announced this week that starting in 2035, you would no longer be able to buy. It would not be legal to buy a new um, gasoline-powered automobile. That 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 was it. So everything, any new vehicle, they wouldn't. If you had an old car, a used car, you could still continue to drive it. But no new vehicles that were anything other than electric could be be sold. Now California did not address questions like. All right, how are we going to charge these vehicles? And, and what are we going to do over the course of the next seven or eight years to get the power grid sufficient to, uh, again, we, we have rolling blackouts right now. And in the summer in California, they tell people they can't run their air conditioning. So, you know, how how are they going to be able to do that? They, they haven't figured out what's going to happen with, like, battery life and things like that. Well, okay, what if you can only get, you know, the technology only allows you to get 
I don't know, 300 miles per charge. And what are you going to do if it takes you, I don't know, five hours to recharge your battery or 10 hours to recharge your battery? How, how are you going to be operating? They, they didn't think about stuff like that. They didn't deal with the question of, gee, where are we going to get all the lithium for these various batteries that we're going to put in? They simply said, by 2035, no new gasoline-powered automobiles can be sold in our state. And it appears that you have two other states, Massachusetts and Washington State, which are now getting ready to follow suit. Hey, we think that's a great idea. Let's do it. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, what I always say about these things is don't California my Wisconsin. But the, the idea that we are, whether we're ready or not, whether the power grid is sufficient or not, whether the battery life makes any sort of sense at all, whether we're able to recharge these vehicles, regardless of what the cost is, whether we can even get the batteries, their, their idea is, okay, this is the deal. You can't sell gasoline-powered cars in our state after, well, about 12 years from now. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will this work? And would you like to see a state like Wisconsin do the same thing? Hey, we're we're just putting you on notice, General Motors. We're putting you on notice, major car companies, Ford. We're not going to allow you to sell those evil gasoline-powered cars in our state coming up 12 years from now. Are you ready for that? Our number, 855-616-1620. My quick take on this. This is another reason why people are just pouring out of the state of California because it's run by crazies. And this idea to me is one of these crazy ideas. As I've said repeatedly, if you want to buy an electric car, go with God. No problem with that at all. But I don't think the government should force you to purchase those electric cars. And what happens if if the technology isn't there, what happens if you can only get 400 miles per charge on an electric car and you decide you want to drive across the country? All right, then what are you going to do? Stop and wait 12 hours while you charge the thing again? I don't think so. 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620. Jeff, can you imagine how many cars will be stuck on the freeways when they run out of juice because of traffic jams? Yeah, can you... Imagine being caught in an L.A. traffic jam. and Well, I, I, I thought I had enough juice to get me home, and now I'm stuck on the I-whatever for, for you know, two hours. Oh, this, this whole thing is dying. Look, there will be a time when the technology and the market catches up to this. You know, and maybe it's going to be five years. Maybe it's going to be 10. Maybe it's going to be 15. I, I, I don't know when that's going to be. As I said earlier, I, I have friends who have electric vehicles. Uh, a matter of fact, we were, there was I was with – we were with – there were ten of us. There was I was with four of the couples last night. Two of the couples that they own they own electric vehicles, but they're like play toys. I mean, they're one of my friends has a, has a place in Southwest Florida, and he's got he's got an electric vehicle, and he uses it to spin around. You know, the, the town he lives in doesn't do it for any sort of extensive driving, but it it, it it's okay. It, it's fine if you're going like within a twenty mile radius. Another friend of mine, you know, just bought one, and he uses it kind of as a play toy to spin around town. But but none of them use that. As as their, their serious driving vehicle because of all the problems that are out there. At some point in time, the market may catch up to make it realistic. But this idea that, hey, we're going to force you out of your cars, I don't think so. And again, where is the power 
going to come from? I mean, like I said, where is the power grid? Where, how are we going to generate the energy that's going to be able to, uh, again, juice up all these cars? 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Dave from California. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Caledonia, sir. Oh, Caledonia. Okay. Hi, Dave. Okay, well, that's different than California. What do you think? Well, uh, well, one thing that has been discussed very much is the fact that right now our our federal government, as well as most states, uh, get money to repair our roads and our infrastructure from gas tax. Obviously, if we can get rid of gas vehicles, there's got to be a way to... um, pay a user fee for the roads. There's been talk about possibly doing GPS tracking, which obviously privacy advocates aren't going to want something like that to happen. So how are we going to assess usage fees on the regular driver with electric vehicles uh, to fund our roads? Well, you're right. I mean, think. No, we're going to have to completely reassess the way that we we tax the vehicles, whether it's a, a mileage-driven tax or whether there's a standard fee or stuff. But I guess I and I think, but that that stuff that you could be worked out. What what you what you can't work out is is forcing. And one of our texters makes this point. Jeff, could you even drive the length of the state of California on one charge? And the answer is is no. I don't think so. And I mean, look, and here, here's the bottom line. See, I, I live in this, this real world. Let's say that you want to drive from, I don't know, San Diego up to San Francisco. Okay. You know, that's several hundred miles. So what, what are you going to do? Well, if, you know, if you're driving a, a regular car now, all right, you know, you're going to, at some point in time, you're going to get off the highway. You're going to pull into a gas station. You're going to go get a cup of coffee. You're going to go to the bathroom. You're going to fill up your car. It's going to take you maybe five or ten minutes to do all those things. And then you're going to get back on the road. And you're going to start driving. All right. Even in the best case scenario, with rapid chargers and batteries, you're still going to be talking a couple hours to recharge the battery. Who in their right mind is going to do that? Now, again, there might be a certain time where you can get these fast charging batteries that recharge in a couple minutes and all. I, I don't think we're anywhere close to that. I don't think we're going to be at that point for generations. And I still don't understand where you're going to get the lithium for the batteries. And I don't understand where you're going to get the power unless we're willing to commit to doing things that I've been an advocate for for a long time, like nuclear power or things like that. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Rod. Uh, Roger and WTMJ, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? So, you know, I drive an expedition because that's what I like to drive. I like big vehicles, but I have a travel trailer. I have a boat. I have a trailer just to do stuff around the house. How am I going to pull those things down? Well... <laughs> I that that's a very that's a very good question cuz California is going to say that all cars and all light trucks like SUVs and stuff like that that's that's going to have to be they're all going to have to be electric powered so i that that's a very good question you know how how are you going how are you going to do all this type of stuff but but we don't think about that we just say i, I guess if you, you don't love the planet if you don't want to give up your car <laughs> Right, right. It's one of those things where, oh, so now we're going to get more electric cars and put all these other companies out of business because nobody can pull their their vehicles out. Well, well, yeah, no, I mean, those are are all sort of very fair questions that are asked. We're going to put all the gasoline stations out of business. But I go back to some of these more fundamental questions, which is, how are we, where is the power going to come from to recharge it? A number of people are texting in saying, well, if, if there is a blackout or a shortage, what happens? Well, you're, you're out of luck. 
I mean that that's the the, the bottom line of this. And and look, and, and I understand that that maybe you you are a big proponent of electric cars and you have one. And again, to which I say, go with God. If you want to drive one of those electric cars, that that's great. And I do appreciate that the technology is probably going to change and they're going to become more affordable because they're really not affordable at this point in time unless you take the big taxpayer supported brakes on these type of things. I was telling you the story the other day about the the young man, the high school kid, who, who bought a a seven year old Ford Fusion. The battery dies on the thing and they told he bought the car for eleven thousand dollars. They told him it was going to be fourteen thousand dollars to replace the battery. Fourteen thousand dollars to replace the battery. But then they said, well never mind, um, they don't even make those batteries anymore. So you're you're out of luck. You've got an eleven thousand dollar paperweight. That, that that's essentially what ended up happening. We're just not close to this. And what I resent and reject is the idea that you've got that the government forcing people to do this. If you want to buy one, that's fine. But the government's saying you're not going to have any choice in doing this. And then the car maker's saying, okay, well, the government's telling us we're, the government's telling us that we, you know, have to be all electric by 2035. So what's that mean, going to mean? That means they're going to be producing less and less gasoline-powered cars over the next several years, which means the cost of that is going to go up. Let's talk to Dan. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey Jeff, uh, Hi, a two quick question here. I, I, uh, I'm gonna put my stock into um, tow truck people because they're gonna have a diesel generator <laughs> on the back of their truck and they can pull over and just right fill these people up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that being said, I do have the thing like ten, well, fifteen years ago, uh, cash for clunker bill. Uh, Obama signed that, and he made cars disappear so that everybody would buy brand new cars. Go figure. Yeah, no, exactly right. Th- thanks for calling. Right, we, 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 see, here's part of this idea. Part of the idea is you've got a lot of these places, and California is one of these places, they don't like cars. What they want to do is they want to try to force you out of, of automobiles. So they want to make it as difficult as they possibly can for you to, to drive. So you, you don't. You, you don't drive. They want to make it expensive. There's a lot of people out there who love the fact that gas was 5 and 6 and $7 a gallon out in California because it, it made people stop driving. They couldn't afford to drive, so they had to figure out alternative things. Now, the fact that it, it just decimated you know, the economy, well, that's okay because we don't want people in these various vehicles. Look, here, here's the bottom line of this. There some people are saying, okay, California is going to be a bellwether, and, and what they do in California, this is going to, you're going to have this sweep over certain states, and you've got Massachusetts, you've got Washington State that apparently are now going to follow suit. There are going to be two different types of states in this country. One is going to be the, the states where the government tells you what you can do, what you can drive, how long you're going to have to wait to recharge those batteries, if you even can. So a trip that would normally take a day is now going to maybe take you three days while you have to figure out and wait for your battery to recharge. Meanwhile, from the perspective of global warming or climate control or, or whatever, you know, India's producing coal fire power plants. China's producing coal fire power plants. But we're going to spend lots more money on electric cars and inconvenience ourselves because California says so. I don't think so. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show, Mike Spalding. Before you go off yes. to your many other duties around here today, I have a question for you. Absolutely. Guess, what would your guess be 
is the undergraduate, the cost of undergraduate tuition, not room and board, just undergraduate tuition at Marquette University. Um, uh, per year, per, per semester, year, per, per, year. per year, per year, uh, twenty thousand dollars per year without okay. room and board. Without room and board, you're, no, you're low. Okay, so take an, take another guess. Oof. How low? Like like, am I cold? I no no. Just just take another. You're you're low. Twenty thousand is low. All right. Uh, let's go twenty. Uh, let's go thirty three thousand. You're low. Oh, I'm just gonna keep going here. <laughs> uh, is it under forty? No. Okay, uh, under 50. Yes, uh, th- uh, right. I- I'll put you out of your misery. Tuition, <laughs> undergraduate tuition costs at Marquette University. Look at the website now. $45,860. Typical housing and meals, $14,636. And then fees, 810 So let's see, carry the, you're talking more than sixty grand. Yeah, per year. Yes, per so year. So that's that's how these students end up with six 60, figures in debt. Sixty now. grand per year. Now that was for undergraduate. Okay, Marquette Law School. I, because I became uh, curious about that because it makes me feel old. But I remember how much law school tuition was when when I was there. Law school tuition is forty nine thousand seven hundred. Books are a thousand. Housing and food thirteen thousand. So you're you're talking. Yeah, kind of in the sixty-two, sixty-three $63,000 per year range. And they're wondering why people don't want to be public defenders well, with, yeah. that, with that. Cost. Well, or, also, you come out, that, that's just a whole other topic, because the law profession, there's no jobs. You know, you, you have these people that come out, and they, they all be, it, it was different when I was going to school, because it was always a competitive market, but there were there were jobs that were available, and you weren't, in you, you weren't in two hundred thousand dollars in in debt doing that sort of stuff. But okay, so forty forty five thousand eight hundred sixty for an undergraduate degree. So keep that in mind for your your children and stuff. Better start saving now. They're going to start applying for scholarships right right at birth. Right, and that that is in fairness. Um, you know they they do have as as they say. We recognize that Marquette is a great place, but we also know that private school tuition can be rather expensive. <laughs> Rather, I was going to say that that's a gift of understatement there. To help you and your family, we offer a wide variety of financial aid options, including grants, loans, scholarships, and student employment. Approximately ninety percent of our students receive some form of financial aid. So that that's the, but but regardless, it costs a whole lot of money. Yeah, my wife uh, did undergrad and then grad school, and she she took like those working scholarships essentially to to nullify the. The grad school cost, because when we were looking at it, yeah, it was like this is going to be an extra, you know, fourteen thousand dollars on top of what you already have, and you're not really working. So she did the whole like become a t- uh, professor, like an adjunct, to help pay for your right. your grad school. So she found a way around that. Right. One. No, and th- there's different ways you can do it. But I, I I bring this out, and the reason I wanted to do that is I was I was stuck by, struck by a story that appears in in the paper today. Marquette students of color protest leading to postponed convocation. Now these. These are people who, in one way, shape, or another, are figuring out ways to pay, well, over almost $60,000 a year to go to this particular school, if you include, again, room and board and things like that. So what happens is the Black Student Council encouraged students to take a stand at Convocation, which is the welcome event that they hold at the Central Mall for the 2,000 incoming students. 
Um, apparently, you had a couple dozen students. So this is a it is a small number of people who bum rush the stage and start screaming, shut it down, holding signs that read, we are not a token and we have a voice, too. Well, again, I, I just first of all, I would opine that. Yeah, no, nobody's token, but you're, you're paying $60,000 a year, $45,000 a year to, to go to this particular school. It, it's not like anybody is too terribly aggrieved, you would think, because, I, I don't know, this is, it, it's, it's a pretty ritzy and pretty expensive private school. Well, here's what happens. So the university says that the, the, this, this is disruptive in nature. So what does the university do when you get a handful, literally a handful of kids who come up and stage this sort of protest, and their beef is they think that there's diversity programs that have inadequate staffing, and maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. I don't know. I don't take a position of that. But what I thought was interesting about this is Marquette decides that when you get, a again, a handful of people that, that storm the stage, instead of simply saying, thanks, get off the stage, they say, we're canceling the event. We're, we're, we're going to cancel the, the event, and then we're going to have all these meetings. What do you mean cancel the, the event? It's like, all right, you are where you are not supposed to be, kids that are, you know, again, $45,000 a year undergraduate tuition. We, we want to hear you. We appreciate it. Maybe you're right. Maybe we should have a second or a third diversity person or whatever. I don't care about that. But what I think is interesting is the fact that Marquette just completely and totally caves in to a handful of protesters and calls off the ceremony on Thursday. Can you imagine the message that this sends to new kids and their parents? That, okay, we, we've got this event, this is convocation event, this is the welcome thing, and we get a handful of people who storm the stage, disrupt this event, and instead of simply saying, okay, you're going to be removed, and if you don't get off the stage, we're calling campus police, and we're going to haul you off, and you're going to be arrested. Instead of saying that, it's like, all you parents, all you kids, well, all right, we're, we're giving in to this, we're going to bail on this, we'll reschedule this type of thing. I mean, seriously. At, at some point, and of course, Marquette's been going in this direction for a long, long time. And I, I don't, I don't mind being politically correct. I don't mind turning your back on a, a lot of the principles of Catholic teaching that you, you know, a lot of time, which is a lot of the fundamental reasons why people, you know, sent their kids to a school like Marquette and paid forty-five thousand dollars a year now for the tuition. But at one, some point in time, you you wonder. Are, are you going to stand up and always allow the, the squeaky wheels to get the grease? And again, I take no position on whether or not this handful of kids has a legitimate beef or, or not saying, well, we want more d- diverse programs and we're, we're aggrieved and we don't think we're getting our $45,000 a year in tuition out of this. But I do think it's ridiculous that the university caves into this sort of stuff and instead of simply saying, that's all fine, that that's well and good, all right, you've had your protest. Now move off the stage. We're going. We're continuing with our welcome thing. Their response is, "Oh, oh, we're going to cancel this entire thing." What sort of? If, I tell you, if I'm if I'm a parent and I've got a kid getting ready to go to Marquette and I see that, my reaction is, "Are we sure we really want to be dealing with this? Because is this how the administration's going to handle every protest every time you get somebody who's aggrieved that decides they've got a beef um, instead of simply saying thanks." Get off the stage or you're going to be arrested and we're going on with our hearing. Just saying, your $45,860 plus typical housing and meals, $14,663.36 at work. And 
No convocation because a couple people were allowed to disrupt it, apparently with the blessing of Marquette University. Uh, there is a breaking news story that I'm um, working on right now. It's 11th and Keith, and there are uh, TMJ4 is reporting uh, reports of an officer shot at 11th and Atkinson. We're looking at some of the video of this now. We'll try to endeavor to bring you some details about this. Um, you know, we, we were talking in the last hour about the California, and here we're we're concerned about the climate, and so we need to force people out of their cars and and. I am not a climate change denier. I, I recognize that things, but the, to me, the climate is always changing. And I have no doubt that the fact that we have more people on the earth now than ever before is putting you know more strain on resources and things of the like. I also appreciate the fact that you have countries like India and China, which are becoming more industrialized, that that contributes to pollution and, and things like that. The thing that I am always hesitant about is the, these gloom and doom scientists who claim to make these predictions like, like they, they know what's, what's going to happen. And, and everything gets blamed on climate change. If, if it's an unusually wet spring, well, that's because of climate change. If it's an unusually uh, dry spring, that's because of climate change. If it's a warm winter, well, that's climate change. If it's a cold winter... That, that's climate change. And it's that, that explanation. And, and a lot of times, it's, it's just weather. It, it's just weather. It, it's stuff that, that changes. And it, it's also a lot of these forecasts and these forecasters that make these predictions about what it's going to be like next week. A lot, think of how many times do those forecasts turn out to be wrong, much less forecast about what it's going to be six months from now or a year from now or five years from now. There's a, there's a story about this. Earlier this year, there, there were predictions that this was going to be an above average, maybe even a record season for hurricanes in the Atlantic. Now, this is we're we're right now in the middle of like hurricane season. I mean, hurricane season runs from I don't know what, but June, you know, June through November or something. And and there were pr- predictions that this was this was going to be bad. Uh, Mexico and the Gulf of Mexico and Florida and up and down the East Coast. That this was on target to be, if not a record bad year for hurricanes, it was on track to be a very an above average year uh, for hurricanes all right and that that's what that's what the climate experts thought just a couple months ago well here we are at the end of august now now don't get me wrong i'm not wishing for hurricanes not wishing for hurricanes at all but we've got about like two plus months left in the hurricane season right september october and then it kind of winds down in november although you can have hurricanes in november but all right so all these predictions okay it's going to be above average all these type of things well, so far, so far, observed hurricane activity in the Atlantic is about 15% of what's normal so far. It's been, matter of fact, an almost historic silent spell. I, I think there's only been two or three 
you know, named hurricanes th- this year. And now all these forecasts that they had, you know, just a few months ago, predicting all this gloom and doom, well, it, it, it just hasn't panned out. Now, why, um, why is this? Well, it's because, well, I'm just looking at the story I'm saying, looking, saying, that says atmospheric scientists have hunches. But, you know, they're, they're not, they're not sure why this is. And they thought that the Pacific Basin, basin, the Pacific Ocean, that might be quieter than usual. And now it's a little bit, not a lot, but it's a little bit busier than usual. But hurricanes are dead all among, and that's a good thing, at least the hurricane activity so far, which isn't to say that two weeks from now or four weeks from now something can't break out. But these predictions that we were going to have an entire summer filled with one hurricane after another, it hasn't panned out which again makes me a little bit, I'm not a climate change denier, but it makes me call into question when you have these experts who say with definitive certainty, I know what this is going to be, or I know what that's going to be, and I can tell you how things are going to be two years from now, or five years from now, or ten years from now, and the point is they don't know. They, they can make guesses, and sometimes they, they might be right, and they can look at their models. But here, the example of this, this this year with hurricanes, just with a couple months before the hurricane season, they were predicting, okay, Florida is just going to get decimated. We're going to have these big hurricanes. And, and it might happen, but it hasn't happened for the first several months. And we're, we're supposed to believe these climate um, scientists when they say, well, we, we know for certain what it's going to be like 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years from now. Bottom line is they make their best guesses, and they might be educated guesses, but that's all they are. Now I must confess, I can use some rest. I can't run this Yes, if we're talking about hurricanes, my producer Charlie knows that we have to go to one of my very favorite Jimmy Buffett songs. It might be my favorite Jimmy Buffett song. It's called Trying to Reason with the Hurricane Season. Yep, Absolutely. Love it. That's that actually might be my favorite Buffett song. People say I love Margaritaville. I am Margaritaville's okay, but you know, Pirate looks at forty and trying to reason with the hurricane season. Those, those are the good, the really good songs that are there. Hey, how about this? Okay, the the new governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, Hochul, she's um, if it's possible, she's even further to the left than, than Cuomo was, and <clears throat> she's getting tired of getting criticized. So she apparently rolls out as a statement because she, she doesn't like being criticized by the Republicans. So here's what she says this week. All right, this is my message to Republicans. All, and there's 5.4 million Republicans in New York State. Just jump on a bus and head down to Florida where you belong, okay? You're not New Yorkers. So they just leave. I, I don't want you awful Republicans here. Now, New York State has already lost one and a half million residents in the past decade. There's no sign that that trend is, le- is, le- is letting up. In fact, more than 350,000 New Yorkers relocated during the 12 months leading up to July 1st of 2021. And so here you have the governor of New York saying, I'm tired of being criticized. So you, you guys just leave. New York City residents pay the highest combined state and local personal property tax rate in the nation. That is, of course, contributing to the, the huge departure, um, together with a lot of the other stuff, people who are unhappy about the policies. But you, you've got the governor of New York saying, if you don't like it, you, you can go ahead and, and leave. 
And apparently that's exactly what lots and lots of New Yorkers have been doing. Bottom line is, you know, when at least the last conservative to leave New York um, happens, just, you know, you can wonder who's going to turn on the lights or you can wonder who's going to have to pay for keeping the lights on. The governor actually said to the Republicans, you don't like it, leave, head to Florida. Well, those of us who like Florida, no, 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 bunch of find some other place along the eastern seaboard to stop at. Uh, you don't need to come all the way down to Florida. Again, we'll keep you updated on this breaking news story involving the, the shooting. And um, reports are a, a police officer has been shot. We really don't know more than that. We'll continue to keep you updated on that. All right, I, I think... It's been interesting because over the last few days, uh, it's been or maybe actually a couple of weeks. It's been you know Joe Biden is starting to like crawl back. His approval ratings have gone from the mid to upper thirties to now they're in kind of like the low forties. Still not great, but but Democrats are feeling a little bit more energized about the upcoming midterm elections. And as we talked about yesterday, they're they're running on abortion. That that's going to be the issue, and they think that that's going to carry them over, and people are going to forget about the horrible state of the economy. Stock market down 750 points as we speak, Dow and the NASDAQ down over 400. They're going to forget about that. They're going to forget about inflation, and they're, they're going to you know turn out the polls in massive numbers all over the abortion issue. Maybe, maybe not. Time will tell. But here's a piece by Kimberly Strassel in the Wall Street Journal today that I wanted to share with you because I thought it was really interesting. Student debt forgiveness is Biden's Bluto moment. His plan will feed inflation and hurt him politically. Now, before I read the article, let me just take a minute and think. I I think that there might be a generation of readers who do not understand the the reference when you say Bluto uh, because one of my all-time favorite movies that I know many, many people have never seen, especially if you are under a certain age, is is the movie Animal House, where, again, it was set in the early 1960s at Faber College, and it starred a number of people, including the, the late, um, great John Belushi, who played a character known as Bluto. So, and he was he walked around in a sweatshirt that said college on it. All right, so here's the piece. If political movies received letter grades... Joe, if political moves received letter grades, Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness mark might rank down there with the deltas of Animal House. Think of it as the president's Bluto moment. In case the White House missed it, Democrats had recently been getting it together. After an 18-month food fight over the Biden agenda, the party finally united to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. It suckered spend-happy Republicans into passing a semiconductor bill that vulnerable Democrats could brag about back home. The left has successfully fanned fears on abortion, putting GOP candidates on the back foot. And Donald Trump is in the headlines, which is right where Democrats want him. Then along comes Blutarski and seven years of college down the drain, which is a great line from the movie. It would be hard to fashion a program that carries more political risk for less political reward. In the name of paying off that powerful voting block known as overeducated and underemployed deadbeats, quote unquote, her phrase, not mine, Mr. Biden is dumping on his own inflation message, dividing his party and insulting any American who has ever worked, saved, or paid a bill. 
Inflation remains voters' biggest worry, and they understand Washington's role in feeding it. Only recently, they watched General Motors and Ford hike the prices of electric vehicles by six to $8,500, roughly pacing the $7,500 tax credit the Biden Inflation Reduction Law bestows. Cause and effect. Millions of American parents read Mr. Biden's Wednesday loan announcement as news that they will be paying $10,000 more for tuition next year, and the year after that, and the year after that, as colleges reap the loan windfall. Yeah, that, that's exactly true. So Marquette, forty-five grand. What do you want to bet that since there's $10,000 forgiveness, it's fifty-five grand next year? It won't stop with college inflation, even Democratic economists warn. Every $20,000 of loan forgiveness is $20,000 the favored college forgiven can blow on urban loft refits or Hawaiian vacations. Pouring roughly half a trillion dollars of gasoline onto the inflationary fire that is already burning is reckless. Jason Furman, the Obama administration's top economist, tweeted, Americans already doubted Mr. Biden's, Biden's new climate and health law would do much to lower prices, but they'll draw a direct line from his loan bailout to further price hikes. A CNBC poll says nearly 60% of Americans fear the handout will make inflation worse. You think? And, of course, the reason the stock market is in the tank today is because the chairman of the Federal Reserve gave a speech that said, you know, we don't have a handle on inflation yet, so get ready for more significant interest rate increases. The plan rips a new fissure in the fissure in the Democratic Party as non-suicidal members run for cover. Maine Representative Jared Golden called for loan forgiveness out of touch. New Hampshire Representative Chris Pappas said this is no way to make policy. Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and Colorado Senate Michael Bennett noted the plan doesn't address the underlying problem of Ryan to of rising tuition. Ohio Representative Tim Ryan, running for the Senate, said the forgiveness sends the wrong message to millions of Ohioans without a degree working just as hard to make ends meet. By the way, let me go off message for a second. Even our very own semi-socialist Mandela Barnes, you know, the Working Families Party, he's even afraid to come out and endorse the Biden plan. They ask him about it, and he's like, well, well, I know I, I support making college more affordable. He's even, and you know he's in favor of it, but he's even unwilling to come out and say that he is in favor of it. In favor of it. And, of course, nobody in the media is going to push him on it. What unites these Democrats? Each is in a competitive race, and they clearly already see the potential to alienate large cross-sections of the American electorate. Sure, loan forgiveness may benefit up to 40 million people and energize Gen Zers and some millennials to vote for the Democrats they were going to support anyways. What about the other 220 million voting-age Americans who are being asked to float the upper-crust seminars on gender identity and social justice? Ooh. Democrats desperately need suburban voters this fall. Those would be the same suburban parents who are already furious over school closures and woke education, who scrimped and saved to pay through the nose for college, and who now look like chumps. Gee, where did we hear that word? Oh, yeah, that's the word I was using. Who now look like chumps as they prepare to pay even more. And the piece goes on and on. The media is hastening to explain that a lot of loan forgiveness will flow to minorities while failing to note how small is the minority of those minorities that actually rack up student debt. While the Animal House Deltas were ultimately expelled, it didn't harm their futures. Mr. Biden may not be so lucky in his own college shenanigans. 
Well, only time will tell, but that's Kimberly Strassel in today's Wall Street Journal. And I think she raises a real interesting point. It's kind of like it is Biden's Bluto moment. He's decided to capitulate to the far left in an effort to pander to a certain segment of voters. He's hoping it's not going to come back on him, but whether it's fueling inflation or just the fundamental unfairness, best thing that could happen to Biden, and it may well happen, is the inevitable lawsuit that's going to come out when the rules are finally put in place. The best thing that could happen to him would be a court somewhere, someplace, putting an injunction on this, slapping a stay on this until after the midterm election so people don't start to feel the immediate impact of it. Otherwise, uh, there might be some payback at the polls. Mark my words, I come this way but once. This will happen to you someday. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday. So I just I shared with you that piece in the Wall Street Journal today, likening the the student loan voter bribe thing that, that Biden is is behind as something that's so controversial that a lot of Democrats don't even want to come out and endorse it, including Mandela Barnes, who is like I say the, the semi-socialist running, and he he even recognizes that this is a, a minefield that, that's out there. But the the the, the piece. They say this is Biden's Bluto moment. It's a reference to the movie Animal House and uh, the John Belushi character that, that was in there. Now, I, I I remember when Animal House came out. I think Animal House is one of the, the great comedy movies of, of all time. And I think still, if I, I've seen it so many times that if I sit and watch it, I can do most of the lines. I, I, I'm able to do most of the lines. So during the break, my 20-something-year-old producer, Charlie, says... Huh. Boy, I thought when you said Bluto, I, I thought you were going to reference the, the the old Popeye cartoons, which, you know, that's Popeye, you know, ended up fighting Bluto and stuff. I said, no, no, no. I said, no, just, just tell me, Animal House, have you ever seen it? Is that with Bill Murray? No, no, that's not with, with Bill Murray. Um, no, I have, haven't seen Animal House. So Bill Murray, he, he was in Stripes. You ever seen Stripes? No, haven't seen Stripes. How, how about Caddyshack? Well, um, Bill Murray was in Caddyshack. Yeah, I, I might have seen a little bit of that. I, I mean, I'm seeing th- these are the movies of my of my you know early adolescence. I mean, th- these are the movies I was watching in college and stuff. And you were doing all the lines and all. And I and I appreciate. So my my point is, this will happen to you at some day. Someday you will be making references to the, the these movies that were kind of like the soundtrack of your, your summer, the soundtrack of your life. You'll be making references to this stuff, and you will find that there's just another generation out there that has no idea of of what it is that you're you're discussing and and to let charlie off the hook this is not this is not the first time i've had this conversation because a couple of weeks ago i was talking to somebody else and the, the subject of, of animal house came up and and a, a couple of people who were younger than us were there and they're just animal house i maybe i maybe i've kind of heard of of that so Mark my words, it will happen to you someday as well. So if, you know, for everybody out there that's kind of smug and saying, well, it's just, I mean, who, who watches these old sort of movies? Trust me, there will be a time, perhaps in the not-too-distant future, where all the references you make from your adolescence and, and your young adulthood and stuff like that, they will just completely fall on, on deaf ears. Animal House, huh? Yeah, I've, I've kind of, I've heard of that. I've heard of that. Maybe. Um, all right, an update on a story we talked about a week ago that um, it, it, it's we, we now know what happened, and unfortunately it doesn't get any better. This was the story, but I think it was like last 
last Monday, and the Journal Sentinel has a very interesting piece that's a follow-up. What you had is you had the 77-year-old man and his wife, and they were visiting Milwaukee. It was Monday afternoon. They were walking to church, and they're walking across the, the Kilbourne Street Bridge, which is one of those drawbridges that raises and, and lowers. It's not manned. By that, I mean there's nobody in the little tower they have that, that raises the bridge. Um, the bridge is watched by somebody who is remote, that is, and he's supposed to be watching like, yeah, I don't know, six or eight or ten different bridges, and they, they base it on cameras, and apparently there's no like backup plan or anything. Well, anyhow, what happens is the guy and his wife are on the bridge, and the bridge starts to raise up. And it's not like a deal. There's some speculation as to, gee, did the guy and his wife, there's a gate that comes down and there's bells and whistles that sound. The the first question was, did did he perhaps just walk onto the bridge as the bells and whistles after the gate had come down? No, that's not what happened. There's a witness that says he was... He and his wife were on the bridge. He, his wife was walking ahead of him, so she was, the bridge raises in half. She was already on the back half. He was not quite to the center part. And the operator, who's supposed to be watching this on, on these television cameras, doesn't see that there are people on the bridge because you're supposed to visually check this and make sure that there's no people on the bridge before you raise it. Well, he, he's on he's on the bridge, and it starts to go up, and he's, he's just kind of like paralyzed because it's going up relatively quickly. And so there's a story in the paper today about these witnesses, these people who were you know just getting ready to go on the bridge, and they're watching all this happen, and they're thinking, can they run up the, the rising bridge to try to catch him? And he ends up starting to slide down, and he grabs hold of the railing, and he's holding it, and he's holding it. But ultimately, he, he ends up letting go, and he, he's killed. It's just it is a horrible, horrible sort of story that's out there. And then it's compounded by the fact that members of the Milwaukee Common Council say, well, the reason the reason this bridge isn't manned, the reason that there's not an operator there is because we're trying to save money and that it, we, we think if we had all these bridges that were actually manned, that is somebody that was on on site as opposed to trying to watch remotely, well, we, we think it could cost up to $6 million. And, and my comment on this was, well, the, the inevitable lawsuit that's going to come out on this is going to cost the city way more than $6 million. So, And you've got a guy that's dead. So this is very, very much you know, um, penny-wise and pound-foolish. The bigger thing is how something like this can happen. And it continues to be the, the thing that I haven't seen any explanations for because – Whenever you have things like this, you would think that there would be backup systems and backup systems and redundancies and redundancies, whether it's it's sensors. I mean, I, I have a couple friends who, who have businesses that are designed to they, – they, they build various types of, of heavy equipment and things like that. And, and the thing that they talk about constantly is is the safety factors, and, and you build in – you build in things that prevent that big truck from from backing up, or prohibit that freight elevator from you know closing under certain circumstances. It's, it's all these different conversations, but it's always with this idea towards safety. It is mind-boggling to me 
that you can have a system where there's apparently no safety backup, where, okay, the, the bridge, you get this signal, the bridge is going to go up, and there's some guy somewhere eating his lunch on his phone. I don't know that that's what happened, but but somebody, that you got one guy who's supposedly watching six, seven, eight, however many bridges he's watching on cameras, and if he fails to see somebody on the bridge, the bridge just raises. And there's no other sort of backup. There's no sort of sensors. There's nothing out there that says, hey, there's something on this bridge. Maybe we should double or triple check before we raise this. And I guess my point about this whole thing is if if you're going to save money, quote, unquote, and you're willing to put people's lives at risk by not having each one of these bridges have an actual tender on them. By that, I mean a person who, who's actually physically there to look and make sure that the bridge isn't going to go up when somebody's on it. If you're not going to do that, you sure as heck have to have more safeguards in because simply relying on one guy to make a visual inspection through a, a camera system without any sort of backup at all, it is absolutely ridiculous. It's sort of like, and that's maybe not the best analogy, but, you know, in, in modern cars, uh, they make them with the backup cameras, right? Okay, well, you know, you, you learn quickly that, yes, you've got the backup camera, and that, that's an aid to, to help you backing up, but it's not a replacement for actually turning around and, and looking. You know, so it, to me, that, that's kind of what the analogy is. Okay, it's one thing to have the cameras and have the cameras there to help out, all in favor of that. But but don't you really need a person that's actually going to be on there instead of simply depending on the cameras? And if you're not going to have a person on there, you sure as heck better have other sorts of safeguards, whether it's sensors or whatever. I don't know. I'm, a, I'm not an engineer for these type of things to make sure that something like this does not happen because what happened was horrible it was inexcusable if it happened because the city was trying to save money well again they're not going to be saving too much money but what you have to do is learn from this to make sure that somebody else so you or me or your kids or your friends or your spouse we're not on that bridge next time that somebody's not paying attention decides to let the thing go up what a terrible way to die. And the story in the paper today is one of the in-person witnesses who tried to help but just wasn't able to do it, who is clearly very traumatized watching this entire thing. And can you imagine how the man's wife feels? I mean, it's just, it was avoidable, it was terrible, and the city's city's got a lot of explaining to do. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. It is the 2 o'clock hour on Friday. We always try to lighten things up just a little bit. Um, Pop Culture Corner, of course, coming up in about a half hour. Um, I Again, a lot of these topics are going back to... Okay, Melissa, before you leave, tell me, you've seen the movie Animal House? Oh, yeah, I have. Yeah. Okay. That was one of my dad's favorites growing up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that that makes <laughs> yeah. me feel any better. That was your dad's favorite. One of his but, yeah. favorites, yeah. But, but yes, but of course, our producer, Charlie, he, he is, he's heard of it, I yeah. think, yeah, but yeah. you know, never never seen any of that. But okay, I've, all right, that, 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 that's good. But we were that's just talking. Yes. Mm-hmm. That, that's good. Okay, I, I feel a little bit better. I remember when I was a kid, um, back, back in the day, when I was a kid, it's... It, 
it was really before I grew up before the, the cable television explosion occurred. I mean, and many of you can probably relate to this. It was if you wanted to watch TV and I because I always loved to watch TV. You, you were it, you your choices were in Milwaukee. It was the the three main stations. It was Channel 4, it was Channel 6, it was Channel 12, and then there were two UHF stations, 18 and 24, and then there was Channel 10, which was PBS, and Channel 36, which was like the, another version of, of that. And that was it. That, that 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 was it. And you watched television, you you watched the programs, you know, when they came on, and if you didn't see it, well, then you were out of luck. You kind of waited till till reruns came out, or you, you heard about it the next day at the water cooler. This is before Al Gore invented the internet where, you know, after every show airs there's you know, fifteen or twenty or thirty or forty or fifty people that are out there, you know, writing their, their reviews of it. It, it was just kind of a, a different world. Also you had fewer choices, which is why, like, ratings numbers were, were, were huge. I mean, the, the last episode of MASH, for example, just, it was huge, but that was because, first of all, it was the last episode of MASH, but secondly, because people just didn't have the different choices. Now, I mean, my goodness, you, you sit down and you've got, you know, the local channels and you've got all the, the cable channels and then you've got streaming, which, you know, is starting to attract more viewers than even the cable channels. So you sit down and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to watch Hulu. I'm going to see what's on tonight and I'll, I'll see where this is. Back in the day, it used to be that, like, for, that used to be that every night, the networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, had three and a half hours of, of programming. It would start in central time. It would start at 6.30, and it would run till 10 o'clock. In the East Coast, an hour later, 7.30 to 11 o'clock. But it was a three-hour window, three-and-a-half-hour window, where the networks provided all the, the entertainment. They provided all the shows. Every fall, they came out with the new shows, and then in, in January, they came out with you know different shows for the ones that didn't make it. But it was three and a half hours. There was a point in time somewhere where the networks cut that back, and they went, instead of three and a half hours, they, they went to three hours, and they took that, that 6.30 hour of time, and they gave it back to the local networks. So the local networks would run some sort of programming. Maybe it was a syndicated show that they ended up picking up or whatever. But they gave that back to the, the local the local stations to program as they, they saw fit. And forever now, it, it's been that. It's been from 7 until 10, for example, in the Midwest. It's been it's been network programming and outside of that 7 to 7 to 10 p.m. windows it, it's local programming nbc here's a breaking story nbc is announcing that it is considering haven't done it yet but they are considering reducing the number of hours they program in prime time under the scenario being discussed nbc would stop programming the 10 to 11, the, in this case, are 9 to 10 p.m. hour, and they would give that back to the local affiliates. So the, the local affiliates, in, in this example, Channel 4, Channel 4, instead of running NBC programming from 7 to 10, would only get two hours of program from 7 to 9, and they would then have the responsibility and the the ability to program from 9 until 10. So maybe maybe they do news during that time, maybe they do syndicated stuff, etc. 
Now, you might say, why would NBC do this? Well, the reason is because it would be a significant cost-cutting move. It costs a lot of money to produce the shows that run Monday through Friday in the 9 to 10 p.m. hour. So this would save the network money, and it would allow them to not have to worry about they, they wouldn't have to produce as many shows. And so in the, in a landscape where you have fewer and fewer people that are watching broadcast television, the, the traditional ABC, NBC, CBS type of things, you'd have fewer people watching that. There are fewer people watching that, more choices that are out there. So, you know, NBC, the network, could save a boatload of money by not having to program that, that 9 to 10 o'clock hour. Now, they're saying that what they might do is they might consider then starting the Tonight Show at 10 o'clock instead of 10.30 so they could perhaps get a jump on some of the other late-night shows that are out there. You will remember a few years back, maybe maybe, maybe more than a few years, that they came up with a similar idea in that they, they took Jay Leno when Jay Leno was still a big deal, and they put his show on at 9 o'clock at night. You know, the, the Tonight Show, you know, filled that void. Well, that... that drew awful ratings, and, and they, they ended up bailing on that pretty quickly because it was a mistake. But now this is apparently as a way to save money, recognizing that people just aren't watching that much broadcast over-the-air TV. They're apparently seriously thinking about giving that hour, that 9 to 10 p.m. hour, back to all the affiliates. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, w- would you miss it? Like I say, the, the big networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, have been programming at least three hours of, of programming a night since the early days of television. And actually, in many cases, it was three and a half hours. Um, but now they're starting to say, OK, maybe this just doesn't make sense. Would you miss it if those big networks suddenly decided Okay, it's only going to be two hours a night instead of three. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My prediction is not only would people not miss it, my prediction is it, it's the wave of the future. As TV viewing becomes more fragmented, as people turn more and more to streaming, I, I think the traditional network models, I, I think they're becoming more and more dinosaur-like. And I will be surprised if NBC doesn't do it. And if NBC doesn't do it, it does it. Don't be surprised if CBS and ABC follow suit. All right, what about the idea of only having three, two hours of network programming instead of three Monday through Friday? 855-616-1620 and, and actually Saturday and Sunday as well, seven days a week. 855-616-1620. It, it, NBC is considering, now they haven't pulled the plug on this yet, but they're considering dropping programming in the 9 to 10 o'clock hours at night. So in other words, that the, it's not like the TV station would be off the air, but Channel 4, instead of carrying whatever NBC runs at 9 o'clock on a Thursday night, they would they would be responsible for programming it them, themselves. Now the advantage to local affiliates is they can 
probably make more money with, with that because you know, they can they can run their news, they can expand their news to an hour, whatever they choose to do. They can carry a syndicated program, you know, what, whatever. They, they have that choice. My question is, if, if the TV network does that, would you miss it? Jeff, I wouldn't miss it at all. My husband and I really don't enjoy any of the current shows in primetime, and basically our TV is off from 6.30 after Jeopardy airs until 10 o'clock news. Quality of shows has declined in our eyes. We do stream some shows, and we watch a lot of sports, but they can take off their shows, and for our household, nobody <clears throat> would really miss it. Steve says, Jeff, I wouldn't miss it at all. Network TV is, in my opinion, has lame shows, masked singer stuff, etc. Um, nothing that interests me at all. Jeff, I don't have the time or interest to care if the other major networks reduce their prime time by an hour. I think most of the fare has become unwatchable years ago. Well, I don't know that it's unwatchable, and I, I don't want to necessarily rip on that, but I will tell you, and I, I said this when the Emmy Awards came out, I, I think one of the reasons you've seen this decline in, for example, people watching the Emmy Awards is television is so fragmented now you, you, nobody sees any of the shows. I mean, back back when I was a kid. But when you know, when when you had the three major networks, and that was pretty much it. You know, everybody at least had a chance to be exposed to the shows. You know, nowadays you look and okay, some of these these shows are on HBO. Well, a lot of people don't have HBO, and and some are on you know FX, or some are on you know AMC, or or some are on Hulu, or some air on Amazon Prime, or or whatever. And it's all this type of stuff that's out there. And, and unless you have the whole universe of these things, you really never have access and a chance to see the shows. But with streaming, you, again, you, you don't... I mean, what will happen typically is I'll, I'll sit there and I'll go to the channel search and I'll, I'll run through it, and if there's nothing that particularly interests me, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm streaming something. I'm going to find something that I want to watch. And there's always there's so much stuff out there that you can always find something. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. I will not miss it because I'm not into the bad game shows and the bad reality shows that I think occupy those time slots quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I do like the Fox six, nine o'clock news that's on. And if I remember correctly, that's where they, they first broke this story about the crazy speeder guy who was causing all that trouble around here. Right. And, and um, I think that channel four could use, use that time slot pretty well for similar means, or they could also take that six thirty show and then do an hour-long show like locally with all the entertainment and stuff. I think there's a lot of good local opportunities that they can. Would, would you rather have news at nine o'clock or ten o'clock? Uh, it depends. I guess if I had to to make a choice, I'd say probably nine o'clock. Okay, no thanks. I, I think I mean, and that that's one of the reasons that kind of I mean. For example, Fox Six. They've, they've got nine o'clock news. They, they've got they've got ten o'clock news. There's um, uh, you know, ten o'clock news used to be the, the really really big thing. That used to be where the the, the centerpiece of of when people watch TV. I, I think that's less so now. I, I I think you know there's early morning TV is is a much bigger deal perhaps than it than it used to be. And and part of it is just the way we consume news too because it's a twenty four seven news cycle and you know if you want to if you want to know what's happening well you you're going you have access to go onto the internet you know you just it, it's that's the challenge that news directors have because you're constantly feeding the, the beast i mean if you want to find out about you know what happened with this this 
police shooting or we think it's a police shooting, one person dead, a police officer shot, um, you know, that, that's a breaking news story. Well, you don't have to wait till the 6 o'clock news or the 10 o'clock news to find out about it. You know, there, there's all sorts of avenues, including the TV station's websites that you go to and you say, okay, what do we know about this now? Um, 855-616-1620. Um, um, Jeff, I, I think that some respect the audience that watches network TV during that period is not necessarily the most desirable demographic for, you know, advertising purposes. Um, well, I mean, I, I think clearly, I, I don't know about that, but I think clearly, you know, it, it's, again, it's the choices and it's the streaming and it's the things like that. Jeff, I'd be fine. Just put the news on an hour earlier and then I could roll over and I could go to sleep. Well, there there is that element that's out there. This would be a, a it would be a big deal, and it would be a sea change. I think this is the wave of the future, though, because I think broadcast television is getting more and more fragmented. Um, we did a topic a couple weeks ago that there, there's a lot of people who think that streaming is essentially going to put what I'm calling cable, all the, the traditional cable channels, thinks it's going to put those those out of business because people. People don't want to watch a particular show. They, they want to watch a show when they watch it, when they want to watch it. So they don't want to wait till 8 o'clock at night on a Monday night to watch Better Call Saul. They want to watch the Better Call Saul. And I understand it's going off the air now, but they want to watch Better Call Saul when they want it. So the, the idea is that moving forward, everything's going to be streamed. And so you're going to be able to just go in and say, okay, this is the show I, I want to see. And new episodes drop on once a week they, they drop on on wednesday mornings kind of like when netflix drops its movies and here's the deal I, i'm not going to wait till eight o'clock for the show to come on if it's the show that i want to see it's the jeff wagner show well i want to i want to watch the jeff wagner show when i get home after work or i want to watch it during dinner or i want to watch it in the afternoon or i want to watch it in the morning or we want to watch it over noon or whatever the, the idea is we don't want to wait till it's on at eight o'clock at night and i think a lot of people believe that that's going to sort of be the future and this is i think a recognition of that i wouldn't be surprised if nbc ends up you know pulling the trigger on this and that nine o'clock hour just disappears and once it disappears from nbc if it disappears from nbc i think you're going to see the other networks follow suit sooner rather than later it is just fascinating to me again how how, how things change over time and how stuff evolves. And I, I think we're we're just starting to see that when it comes to you know, the way people watch television. Now, radio, on the other hand, I mean, I understand we do podcasts and stuff like that, but Melissa, you're not going to be able to replace us because people like the currency and the immediacy of, of radio and being able to get in their car or whatever and tune in and hear hopefully interesting and compelling local talk and find out what's going on in the news and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, radio is always local, and they can get it more accurately or more efficiently because we're on all the time, and we can do breaking news like we have on the north side today immediately. So you get the news. You don't have to wait till 5 o'clock. Right. No, it, exactly, and it's, it's that thing, and it, it's interesting because I've been, you know, people have been saying, okay, radio is going to be dying. That, that, that's, you've been hearing that for the last 70 years, and actually, you know, radio, especially spoken word radio like we do it's it's just thriving and you look at you, you look by by any objective measure you know starting with ratings and moving on and it's just like uh, people thankfully 
enjoy what we do and they listen and that's why we love doing this and i think you're right there are other offsets of it like podcasts sure. but we still will always have i believe local radio like what you and i do exactly so we'll, we'll be around for the next Hopefully, 5 10 yeah. 15 20 years <laughs> who, who knows yeah. it's time now for jeff wagner's pop culture corner put aside the heavy lifting and call the acunet mortgage talk and text line 855-616-1620 and now here is jeff wagner Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. This is the 2.30 hour. We haven't done this for a couple of weeks because, well, I think we were preempted by a baseball game, and then I think I was in Alaska on our listener trip for a week. So it's been a couple of weeks. For those of you who might be new to the program, what we do in the 2.30 hour on Fridays is we, like the big voice guy says, we put aside the heavy lifting and we stop talking about Trump derangement syndrome or whether he should be in prison, and we stop talking about politics, and we stop talking about um, all the other issues of the day that we spend hours and hours discussing over the course of the week. And we try to have a little bit of fun and call this segment Pop Culture Corner. Some weeks we talk about music, and some weeks it's food, and some weeks it's travel. And, well, it's just whatever, normally there will be a story during the course of the week that kind of tickles my fancy, and and I hope it will be interesting to you as well. Pop Culture Corner is sponsored by our friends at Palermo's Pizza, delicious frozen pizzas made right here in Wisconsin for over 55 years. Palermo's is Wisconsin's hometown pizza, and as we do every Pop Culture Corner segment, I have a Palermo's Pizza prize package, to try saying that three times fast, to give away to one caller. It's on. It's got to be a caller. It is exclusively in the discretion of my producer, Charlie. But our um, prize package includes uh, certificates for a couple free pizzas and this really cool pizza cutter. I want to see if I can get one of those myself and a couple other you know, Palermo's pizzas related things. So that, that's what we do with Pop Culture Corner. All right. So what are we going to be discussing today? This morning, as I'm getting ready for the show, I'm, I see this piece. Now, from time to time, we talk about the, once a year, we'll do a segment on, on the best Christmas movie. It's kind of like one of the staples that we've been doing. And many, 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 many people say their favorite movie, their favorite movie, Christmas movie is the timeless movie, A Christmas Story. Right. It's just we have all seen a Christmas story when Christmas time rolls around Christmas Eve into Christmas Day. I think they show it 24 seven on both TBS and TNT, all those different things. So we've all seen a Christmas story. You know, you'll shoot your eye out, all those sorts of things. I think in many respects, it's as close to a perfect holiday movie as there can be. Well, here is the story. This November, they are releasing a sequel to the classic A Christmas Story. It's going to premiere on HBO on November 17th. Peter Billingsley, who was the kid, the guy, who played Ralphie, he is, the the movie, the plot is apparently, he's going to star him, and he is going to be going back to his childhood home with his wife and his children in an attempt to capture the Christmas magic of his childhood. The sequel is also going to include some of the act the, the the guy that played his younger brother Randy he's going to be in it and his childhood pals Flick and Schwartz will be in it as well and and maybe there's going to be other people as too now obviously the dad um, who passed away um, he's, he's not going to be there but but they're going to do a remake of this in addition to that there are a number of other 
remakes and or sequels that, that are out there. Um, on, on Amazon Prime, any day now, they are going to be debuting uh, September 2nd, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, which is an eight-episode sort of sequel to the the movie the lord of the, to the books the lord of the rings and the movie the lord of the rings amazon paid 250 million dollars for the rights to do this another story today chicago tribune apparently ferris bueller you know ferris bueller's day off they are thinking about bringing that back there's a spin off in the works for that Jake Glennonhall, he's set to star in a remake of the movie Roadhouse. Dirty Dancing, there's a sequel to that on the way as well. And the list goes on and on and on. As Hollywood runs out of ideas for new movies, they've decided let's go back and let's let's do sequels to movies that have been successful. And, of course, one of the things that is driving that is what what was the big movie from this summer? Well, it was the sequel to Top Gun 20, 30 years later, Top Gun Maverick. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, candidly, I think the last thing the world needs is a sequel to Christmas Story. I, I just, I will probably watch it, but the idea of... I don't know, going back and seeing, you know, the, the kid that played Ralphie and what he looks like 30 years later and trying to recreate that. It's just, you know, it's going to be terrible, or at least my instinct tells me it's going to be terrible. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I think is an absolutely tremendous movie, a sequel to that. Well, I, I don't I don't need to see Ferris Bueller 30 years later. My question to you, though, for Pop Culture Corner is what movie would you like to see them make a sequel to. What is a movie that you want to see that next step, the movie you hope that they would make a sequel to? 855-616-1620. Again, I think of couple, some of the sequels that they came out with just in the last year or two. The, the Breaking Bad sequel, El Camino, I thought that I could have lived without that. The prequel that they made to The Sopranos, or The Many Saints of Newark, I thought that was awful. 855-616-1620, what movie would you like to see them make a sequel to? If not Christmas Story, what would it be? 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. This is Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Now back to Take Your Calls, here's Jeff Wagner. Okay, if, if you're just tuning in, um, they're doing a, a sequel to Christmas Story. It's going to air mid-November on HBO, and they've got the kid who played Ralphie. He's coming back, and the plot is he's going to go back with he's he's going back to his old home, which by the way still exists in in Cleveland. You you can go there and you can you can visit. Uh, I think it's Cleveland. You can visit the house and things like that. They, they've turned it kind of into a museum. I, I'm not sure Christmas Story needs a, a, a sequel. They're going to do a sequel apparently to the movie Roadhouse. They're going to do a sequel to uh, the the movie um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and I'm sure you don't need a sequel to that. But my question, what are you going to do? We're going to focus on Ferris Bueller's kids? Come on, give me a break. What movie would you like to see them do a sequel to? Let's start with Mike. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? Good. Okay. What movie would you like to see them make a sequel to? Um, a classic, The Wizard of Oz. Oh, you want to see what happened to Dorothy uh, after? Right. Uh, you, know, um, you know, that's interesting. I mean, thanks. There, there's certainly a lot of, there. there is kind of a lot of 
potential for that, you know, because actually the 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 author of the books, um, whose first name is escaping me, his second name was Bond. Um, he he. You know, he, he wrote a whole series of, of, of Oz books. So there's a number of Oz books that are, are out there, and there's certainly a basis. But I mean, I could see people would be interested in trying to figure out, okay, what's going to happen? You know, what, what happened after she went back? What happened to Oz after the witch died? I could see that. Let's talk to Jim and Grafton. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yep, lost Jim. 855-616-1620. Number of people are mentioning the Breakfast Club. Sequel to that. See what happened to all those guys, uh, those guys and gals after they grew up. Jeff, I'd like to see time after time. I'd rather, I'd like to see the child, H.G. Wells and his wife, played by Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen, use the time machine to go back in time and stop Jack the Ripper. Well, you could always do that. Matter of fact, a number of people are saying, as long as we're talking about time travel movies, a number of people are saying, we think we need one more Back to the Future movie. Don't know. That was one where, you know, you had the trilogy, and I thought the first Back to the Future movie was just absolutely outstanding. And I thought the second one was a little bit dark, and I thought the third one was not as good as the first two. But, you know, who knows? Um, Jeff, uh, Braveheart. We need a sequel to Braveheart. Well, the Mel Gibson character dies in that. Jeff, for me, I'd like to see a sequel to War Games. Jeff, I'd like to see a sequel to Grease. Well, you know, they did They did a sequel. They brought a, a movie, Grease 2, out, and I am proud to say I've never seen that. It. it I, the reviews were just absolutely horrible. Let's talk to Linda in Franklin. Linda, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Linda. My movie would be when Harry met Sally. Oh, you want to see what happened after they left? <laughs> yeah, yep. what happened after they left the Empire State Building? Now you know it's that that would be interesting. You know, it, it's funny, Linda. You, you talk about that movie because <clears throat> over the course of the last couple of weeks, including when we were doing our listener trip to Alaska, I swear there, there must have been you know half a dozen people who were doing lines from the movie when Harry met Sally, including the famous line of. I'll have what she's having. I mean, everybody's been. I was at dinner last night. Somebody did that line. You know, it's it's classic. Yes, that one's never. It's never going to get old. It, it doesn't. No, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's talk to Greg. Greg, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, I'd love to see a remake of Varsity Blues. You got so many storylines. I'd even like to see what happens to Bacon the Pig. <laughs> okay. Well, that, yeah, it's been a while. Thanks for calling. It's been a while since I've seen Varsity Blues, but I mean, I, that would kind of work. Let's see. Jeff, I would like to see a sequel to Goodwill Hunting. That would, you know, what, what happens? What happens to the Matt Damon character? I love Goodwill Hunting, as a matter of fact. That's one of those movies that I just stop and watch. All, all the time, <clears throat> whenever it's on. And, you know, and of course, you know, the late, great Robin Williams had such a great role in that. Yeah, I would have, I would have, I'd love to see that. Somebody says, I'd like to see a sequel to E.T. What exactly happens? I appreciate that. Let's talk to um, Steve. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Good. My note says you're calling from Nicolay National Forest. Well, I'm up in Wabino. I call you once in a while from Wabino. Okay. Which is up in Nicollet National Forest. Got it. I've got a small cabin up here on Trump Lake. Outstanding. Name of the lake. Yeah, you, you probably you probably anyway, tempted to go steal the sign or something, but you, you think better of it, huh? 
I, I've thought about it, so I've thought about it, and we get people who honk at it and people that kind of give it a middle finger. So <laughs> it's kind of strange, so. Okay, what movie would you like to see them make a sequel to? I would love to see them make a sequel. I don't know how they could possibly do it. At the end of Animal House, when Senator Blutowski is right. driving off into the sunset in his Cadillac, I always thought a great sequel would have been something about him in Washington and maybe somehow get Babs, who's a, in Hollywood, into it, and Eric Stratton, who was yeah. an OB-Guiney, into it somehow. So, And that's what I thought. So. I know. Th- and Steve, you, by the way, are our winner of our Palermo's Pizza Prize Package. So, you know, Animal House is one of my all-time favorite movies. So, obviously, I've been abusing my producer because he's never seen it, although he's going to try to make an effort to do that this weekend. But you win our Palermo's Pizza Prize Package. So enjoy the pizzas up north. Well, I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. Right now, actually, that's right. Animal House. For those of you who haven't seen it, at the end, right? They they just they they do like this flash forward, and they show okay, this is what happened to this person. This is what happened to that person. It's tough to do sequels. I was watching. I think American Graffiti is just a great great movie. I think it's a timeless movie. And then they they did a sequel to that. They did American Graffiti 2. And I actually, I watched that. I've seen it a couple times. I've tried to like it. And it's just, it's just not the same. It's just tough to do good sequels. Now, Godfather 2 was the exception to that. There, there might be some other, but Godfather 3, of course, kind of went downhill. Jeff, I'd like to see a sequel to The Shawshank Redemption. You know, what happened? Jeff, I'd like to see a sequel to Pretty Woman. Well, that would be kind of interesting. You know, how, how did it turn out? Um, let's see. Dirty Dancing. Yeah, that would be it. Um, well, it, again, Dirty Dancing, apparently they're looking at, you know, making a sequel to that. So you find out what's going on. A lot of people are saying E.T., the extraterrestrial. Um, Castaway, which was a great movie with Tom Hanks. Yeah, I remember the, the ending of the movie, he's rescued from the island, and it's just this very open-ended thing where his life is now just completely open, and it's it's left to speculate, you know, what's... What What is his life going to be like? That would be kind of interesting. My Cousin Vinny, a number of people are mentioning that with Joe Pesci. You know, what? where did he go after they drove out of that small town? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of that stuff that's out there. Bottom line is, if you're hoping for a sequel for one of your favorite movies, stick around, because that's clearly the trend with, with Hollywood. It's like, well, if we had something that worked once, maybe we can figure out a way to make it work again. It's tough, because most of them don't turn out like Top Gun Maverick did.